Chapter 16 DCI John McLaughlin arrived at the crime scene at around 11.10am. By the time he had pulled his Ford Mondeo to the side of the road at Stock Road, he had little space left. There were already police cars, a fire engine and various forensic vehicles parked up. The crime scene was actually at the local household waste plant, situated on Stock Road. It was bordered by various roofing vehicle repair shops and a phone repair outlet to the north. To the northwest was the Sutton Road Cemetery and Crematorium, and to the south and east, the Victory Sports Ground and the Jones Memorial Recreation Ground, all forming natural greenery boundaries. McLaughlin acknowledges from his own iPad due to satellite imagery from Google Maps, and he immediately recognised that the neighbouring sports fields and crematorium offered anybody an exit on foot under the cover of darkness. His police procedural mind was already now in full flow, thinking about the scene. He walked up to the entrance of the waste site and was greeted by DC John Kahn. Boss, acknowledged Kahn. McLaughlin viewed the main solid spiked entrance gate and noticed the chain half hanging off. I see the padlock gate's been cut then. Yep, replied Kahn. That's how they gained access. Forensics are running prints as we speak. With the main blue and yellow crime scene tape covering the west waste entrance, McLaughlin was led to a forensic tent to the left of the entrance where he suited up in the usual white forensic garb, put on a blue mask and then proceeded to cover his shoes with the usual blue forensic shoe covers. He signed the crime sheet's document and then the attending duty police officer, acknowledging his seniority, let him and Khan step under the tape and into the crime scene. The art of forensics is not a quick process. Their skills lie in the detail. Meticulous work, which well after the body is gone, they continue. In the case of the Stock Road incident, the weather overnight had been wet and then turned to ice, and even though the rain had eased off again in the last hour or so, the need to preserve the site had been crucial. For that reason, the area was covered in three identical forensic tents, which simultaneously ran from three feet inside the site to the far end of the waste plant. This enabled the forensic team to work under dry conditions and to try and obtain as much evidence as possible. So what do you think happened? asked McLaughlin. Well, replied Khan, firstly the site opens at around 9.30 on a Saturday. The duty workers should have been here for nine. However, two mechanics travelling to the auto place just down the road saw at about 7.55 that there was a fire in the waste plant. They saw the tyres go up and they immediately pulled over to the side and called the fire brigade. A record showed the emergency services arrived at around 8.10am and proceeded to put out the fire. We've got Fire Officer James Maskell over there. Khan pointed to a group of fire officers to the right, who called us when the fire was finally died down and we've got his report, but they spotted a body in the back of the vehicle. Local PCs attended, Patel and Chung. They called it in at around 9.10. Why am I being told of this now then, asked McLaughlin. Khan replied apologetically, well, I did try and reassign to locals knowing you're off, but based on the sickness and everything going on, they thought it should be with us, the serious crime division, so I had to call you in. McLaughlin acknowledged the comments and introduced himself to the white-suited crime manager who was walking towards them. The name badge said, Sarah Tulliper. John, we're obviously still working on the scene and trying to get what we can do. It's proven tricky at the moment with both the fire and the rain conditions, but as I said, we'll do our best. McLaughlin nodded. Any trace on the vehicle so far? Tulliper nodded. 
Not yet, and the plates have been completely, completely burnt out. The plastic's gone, we've got no recognition. However, what we will have obviously is a VIN number, hopefully, and once this vehicle cools down, we'll have another look, probably give it about an hour. Understood, nodding McLaughlin. What about our victim? Asked Khan. Tulipa led McLaughlin and Khan through tent one and two until they reached the far tent. Already the area was covered in numerous yellow tag numbers inserted into the ground, evidence points. McLaughlin looked around and counted one, two, three, four, right the way through to 26. McLaughlin stepped carefully onto the white stools marked for his attention so that he could get close to the vehicle without affecting the forensics works. Up ahead, a crime officer was still also busy shooting lots of film at the vehicle. The back of the vehicle's rear door was partly intact but heavily buckled. The heat had clearly had a dramatic effect. Tulliper slightly moved the door further ajar and McLaughlin managed to peer inside. The victim appeared to be laid out like a corpse, but it was completely blackened, head to toe. Not that there were any toes there, but it looked like the head had been left as a mass of carbon melted together with some plastic. Jesus, whispered McLaughlin. He turned to Tulliper. Any ID? Uh, haven't got close enough yet. We don't think so, but obviously we'll keep you informed. We're going to get him bagged and tagged in the next hour and off to the mortuary. I'll let you know who's handling the post-mortem and we'll take it from there. Thanks, much appreciated, said McLaughlin. Then, carefully walking back on the same route it previously taken, McLaughlin stepped out from the crime scene, removed the overall and shoe covers and dropped them in the mask with the mask in the bin. He stood back to the, with his back to the entrance and surveyed the area for a moment. Across the road, he saw several industrial units with cars parked nearby. Khan, let's get the team on door to door then, immediately. We need to know A, who has any CCTV in the area that can help us, B, who possibly was around uh, early hours of this morning and saw anything. We also need to understand, as it says there, the site was closed at 8pm last night. That means we have a window here of about 12 hours between closure and this event. Yes, boss, replied Khan. Oh, said McLaughlin, and make sure that we get hold of whoever locked up last night. On it, replied Khan. Chapter 17. That same afternoon, back at Cambridgeshire Constabulary HQ at Hinchinbrook Park, Ash Quinn and Susie Matthews had taken a much needed break from their interview with Carolina Saltis. Both of them were emotionally drained, tried to take some comfort from the strong mug of coffee. Neither spoke as they contemplated their next move. Ancor, the translator, still remained in the interview room with Saltis, but after discussions with Matthews, they had now been moved to a more relaxing environment at a larger room further down the corridor. Originally established with two soft sofas and soft chairs, it was the chill-out room for MSHTU, a more welcoming environment for everyone. It now played host to Angle and Saltis. Saltis sat with a half-drunk coffee cup in her frail hands and she was now covered by a dark blue blanket. It had been four hours since Saltis had originally been picked up by the team, but she was still feeling cold. Angkor noted that at least she appeared apparently less scared. 
truth was, however, Saltis was both emotionally drained and just living on her natural instincts. Having the three women around her in the presence of no men had helped her cope, as she'd spilled her guts about her awful life. Every so often she'd felt nervous during the talks and had automatically started scratching her forearms. Spotting the nervous tick earlier, Susie Matthews had made a note in her book. She wrote the words abuse, question mark, physical, question mark, drugs, question mark, substance, question mark, and she made a mental note to pick up on this subject later. Both Quinn and Matthews strode back down the corridor. They stepped into the larger room and sat down on a sofa, both seated together. They beckoned Saltis and Angle to take a seat on the opposite sofa, and Quinn reached across the nearby table and switched on the microphone. The usual routine followed. She advised us to who was in the room, ensuring that they all said their names and then stated the time. This time, Carolina said her full name. Carolina Saltis. It was just past midday when the conversation had started up. This time, the team were more relaxed, but they were still focused on discovering the truth. It was no longer an interrogation or an interview. The techniques had changed. Body language was more in tune with making Saltis feel comfortable. They needed to get to the true facts. They wanted Saltis to reveal the facts of her life. But were they prepared for the worst? Chapter 18 McLaughlin and Khan made it to the post-mortem just in time. The senior police inspector had been texted by the mortician earlier that afternoon to advise that the PM would take place around 5.30. It was a priority task, and as such, McLaughlin wanted to be in attendance. The victim was somebody's son, and despite no second guessing as to whether the death was caused either by suicide or murder, it was McLaughlin's role as lead criminal investigator to ensure that the facts were ascertained and, if need be, the victim and the families received justice. Prior to their attendance, anatomical pathology technician Annabel Jameson and one of the tech assistants had opened up the industrial-sized fridge, removed the body, numbered in the bag 7877661, from its rung and carefully placed the body on the PM table. The two technicians then silently but carefully peeled off the body bag until the corpse was left solely on its own on the cold stainless steel table. Jameson's responsibilities pre-post-mortem were many. She had to ensure the correct tools and services were close at hand. First, she had placed a new blade in the PM40 scalpel, which was the main tool of the autopsy, followed by rib shears, scissors, so as to be able to cut through the sternum and easily reach the soft tissues beyond, and several ladles ready to deposit the organs as and when they were removed. To the other side of the table, she had carefully positioned the head saw and various tubes ready for the collection, if need be, of urine and other fluids. Jameson made sure everything had its perfect place. She was ready to proceed. She double-checked that the body bag number matched the nearby paperwork and then ensured she had two pages of the blank androgynous body shape where over the period of the autopsy she would carefully mark all things of interest across the body, both front and back. During the autopsy she would undertake the majority of the incisions, and at the time that Khan and McLaughlin stepped into the PM room, dressed in their white medical apron and masks, Jameson had already taken the PM40 scalpel and was started to cut from behind the right ear of the victim and run the blade down to the sternum and then straight down to the pubis bone. 
She was just completing the left-hand side work to finish the perfect V-shaped incisions when McLaughlin nodded at her in acknowledgement. At that same time, from the far end corner of the room, a door opened, and similarly, a smart-dressed man in the relevant medical garb, a Majesty's appointed pathology officer, Keir Stevens, strode through into the room and introduced himself. As a pathologist, he had held two crucial but clearly focused roles for this PM. One was to determine how the victim had died. Two, and what caused their death. And that was his job to do. As for Jameson, her role would continue after the PM, with liaison with the police, the victim's family and the funeral directors. It was a role not for the meek and mild. Chapter 19 Carolina's last 18 months of her life sat within the UK were borne out in the next interview. The version of her life lasted over 90 minutes. It was a gruelling 90 minutes in which numerous times the four women took a break. Quinn quite often switched off the recording machine and then she and Matthews went off for a break. At the same time, Carolina then spent some time with Ancor. The intention was tactical. Ancor to befriend her. Quinn and Matthews to check certain facts and events if possible. They knew the clock was ticking. However, this interview process would be steady by steady, inch by inch moving towards some information that they could either verify or try and believe that was the absolute truth. Yes, it would be versions of event from Carolina, but they were doing the best they could. They needed to make sure she remained on side, but at the same time they needed to understand that she could be a victim and therefore she needed the due care and attention necessary. Every so often Quinn geographically tracked her movements, but they could not determine when and where except for the time. As such, the piecemeal interview was more laborious than expected, and they tried piece by piece to piece it together. Over time, certain events came together, and they managed to account for these. For example, Saturday 6th of April 2019, the Aintree Grand National. Caroline had hinted she had been hired out to several rich businessmen and had spent the day at the Aintree Grand National. She spoke of peering out of a car on another incident where she had arrived in the UK and stared up at what was deemed to be a big iron angel. Matthews picked up on this and managed to show Caroline a picture of Anthony Gormley's iconic Angel of the North. She nodded in appreciation that that was what she'd seen. So sure enough, at some point, she'd been near Newcastle. Carolina told them of the large illuminated tower by the seaside where she'd spent a summer in a caravan park being hauled out every evening. The only solace for her was looking out of the window of the caravan and admiring the tower lights as it cascaded upon the town. After several pictures of seaside resorts, they hit jackpot again, Blackpool Tower. They couldn't deduce the exact timings, but it was definitely Blackpool Tower. Words flowed, as Carolina spoke, about how she and many other women, many young Eastern European girls, were bundled into a van several times and driven to an airfield, where some 30 to 40 minutes later they found themselves at a very large house. There, when the champagne, drugs and whoring flowed all night, she remembered she was hired out to a man who had a blue new Lamborghini, the number plate AL1. She talked of lots of Arabs, lots of parties, lots of drugs. 
and whilst the drugs took hold on her and her colleagues, she not only became reliant on the need for them, but she found her fortunes smiled downwards. Her health deteriorated, her looks deteriorated. She became what they termed to her lower-grade pussy. Then she was handed around to a group of Pakistani men in some godforsaken place every evening where they paid as little as £10 to enjoy her. She thought she was at the end of the line and then she met Igor Drabkov. Drabkov had seen her one evening and decided to pay £1,000 when she was bundled into his Audi car and driven away to a place where he lived with several East European women. Six months later... After endless times of being his punch bag and his meal ticket, and also his whore, he took possession of her by keeping her in the home just for himself. He told her to consistently keep quiet, do as you're told, take his cock in her mouth when she could, and she was freed from the night of further abuse from others, but now she was his plaything. Resist, he said, play up, and she could bet a bottom dollar that by the end of the night she'd be dead, Hearing this, Quinn went silent and then asked Angle if she could translate. She reconfirmed the same words. Carefully, step by step through the interview process, he asked Cal- Carolina if she would carefully move her clothes and change into some new ones. Initially, she was hesitant. Angle spent some time with her, but then reluctantly she aimed to please her new friends and she nodded. Cautiously, she went off to another room and spent some time there as she managed to fit an ill-fitting fleece-lined tracksuit while the three women left her to the privacy in the room. Angle stood guard at the door while Quinn and Matthews watched from the two-way mirror room. Sure enough, they gasped as a naked Carolina changed into the tracksuit. It was there through the two-way mirror they saw the bruises. Some old, some new scars. Some old, some new bruises. But devastating wounds on her. Carolina's miserable life was etched out on a frail skeletal frame. With Carolina now freshly dressed, relaxed with some bread and a warm tomato soup, Quinn and Matthews returned to the team's HQ to debrief their colleagues. Chapter 20 Whilst Matthews and Quinn were still busy interviewing Carolina, Amir and Megan, NCA officer, pointed to the case and managed to arrive and was enjoying a coffee with Blake and Jenkins, and debriefing them. So guys, here's the facts. The Albanian crime gangs dominate the cocaine trade here in the UK. As a direct result of this, we have spent the last six years at NCA trying to establish their networks and infiltrate them. Yeah, good luck with that, replied Bake. Exactly. These gangs are defined on true Albanian culture. The head of the family have dominated various regions of their homeland for many years. They've now spread their tentacles wide, and they're not only dealing with the UK, but are now cleverly working with, amongst others, the Colombians, the Afghanis, and the Pakistanis. For these guys, loyalty is everything. You break that trust and you're most definitely dead. Step out of line and you're most definitely dead. These men operate under military approval, very similar to how they applied themselves in the Kosovan Wars. How a man dies is a statement for them. Meaning? asked Jenkins. Well, the worse the death, the greater the kudos for the killer. And Megan continued. They're bloodthirsty, territorial and dependent on loyalty above all else. 
In the past six years, we have seen at least a dozen people in the same position as your man Drabkov or Krasanov, whatever he is. Each time we've offered them a chance to flip on their crew and each time they've decided to take the custodial sentence and stay alive. Every person we've tried to turn is linked by birth in some way to the Albanians, their cousins, nephews, stepsons. However, here's where it gets interesting. In the case of Krasanov, he is not. He's Ukrainian. We came across this guy back in Enfield in 2017, late Christmas. Not the sharpest tool in the box, but he has a certain presence about him. His size and demeanour proved useful to one Albanian named Ritan Ameti. Ritan Ameti came to the UK under the guise of being an asylum seeker from the Kosovan War. Albanian criminal gangs saw this as an ideal opportunity to pull their families into Britain on the premise of being genuine refugees. It was only years later that the various checks by the Albanian security forces that have proven over 10,000 of these refugees are not genuine. We suspect Ritan Ameti and his brothers came to Britain. Over the past few years, we've come to realise they are part of the Ameti clan. They hold a stranglehold in various counties in southwestern Albania. Even today, them, the Krasniki and the Ramadi clans own most of the Albanian districts and the drug trades. You mean it's a closed shop, commented Blake. Yep. But here in the UK over the last few years, we've managed to at least piece it together. We believe Ritten took control of North and West London, then stretched up to Bucks and Bedfordshire. He then tried also to crack open the Midlands market, but came up against the Pakistanis. His brother Hassan took control of the South East and based himself in Felixstowe. It looks like over time he's managed to spread the network well across the Kent and Essex areas. He has most definitely been successful in controlling Tilbury Docks, and our latest intel there is that he's even managed to establish a pact with the Turks in South End. What do the Turks have to do with it? inquired Jenkins. Well, South End and the neighbouring areas have become the homeland for migrating Turkish immigrants. Most of them, however, are as a result of the fallout of the Iraq war and the disaffected groups on the border. You'll actually find they're not actually Turks, but they're Kurds. Today, South End is a Turkish-born mayor and the place is run by Turkish groups who control, we believe, over 70% of the heroin trade in and out of the UK. Fucking hell, commented Blake. We fear now that the Armeti boys are working happily with the Turks and that their network's only getting stronger and stronger. I get it, replied Jenkins. So what's happened to the rest of the brothers? And Megan followed on. Well, Arton took control of the south coast and he's now definitely got Brighton, Portsmouth, Southend and Bournemouth in his pocket. We know Raphael, on the other hand, has been busy in the northeast establishing his network. Hull, Newcastle, Grimsby... We also think he may have infiltrated areas like Blackpool and Lytham. So they've got a good network for distribution then across the UK, commented Jenkins. Exactly, replied Megan. Nico, another brother, took a different route and headed west. He now controls all distribution across the West Country, and especially Bristol, Cardiff, Swansea and Wrexham. These boys are very clever. What do you mean, asked Blake. Well, firstly, when they arrived in the UK, they kept their heads down and kept away from inner London. Then, as they grew, they managed to broker a non-compete deal with the already established Albanians running the Soho brothels. They also helped them get rid of the Cypriot and Greek cartels. 
In return for such a favour, the old school Albanians let them run their businesses UK-wide, providing they steer clear of London. Okay, so what's it got to do with our man Krasanov, inquired Blake. Well, Ritten Armetti came across Krasanov around late 2015. He was given the title of Toga. What's a Toga, asked Jenkins. It's a title for a lieutenant. It's the highest honour possible for a non-Albanian to own. So if he's such high up, then how the fall from grace, asked Jenkins. Well, the fall from grace was fast and brutal. Krasanov enjoyed several years running alongside Ritten. They grew the business up, and even though they had run-ins with the Birmingham Pakistanis, they've managed to extend further north. They now work together with the Irish for Liverpool and Manchester, and took most of the Midlands through Nottingham, Derby, Sheffield and Leeds. These boys are brutal. You stab at a line and you lose a part of your body. Rumours have it that Elboy was the one who took the body parts. Jenkins and Blake listened intently. Then disaster struck. Late last year, Ritten attended a cousin's wedding in Nutsford in Cheshire. He attended with Krasanov, but he also brought his Ukrainian girlfriend with him, Yulia Smolenkova, and their four-year-old son, Ilyev. It appears Ritten and Julia got into a row, and late that Sunday morning, he sped off himself in his Audi, took his young son with him, and left Krasanov and Yulia back at the event. It was a couple of hours later, down on the M1 at Junction 8, when he undertook three cars and met head on a parked van on the hard shoulder. Shit, exclaimed Blake. Shit's not the word, Blake. Police were scraping up body parts for several hours. Sadly, the kid went straight through the windscreen and died instantly. Several people in the back of the broken-down van were critical, and Ritten lost an arm and later both legs. However, he passed away two days later in Luton General Hospital. Since then, the Armadi clan came down hard on Krasanov. He protested he'd tried to stop Ritten from driving the car. He believed he had a neck full of booze in him. There was a moment when Krasanov actually thought he was going to be executed, and they also heard rumours of suspicion that he and Yulia were lovers. Nothing was ever proven. So what happened, asked Jenkins. It appears in the end that family is family. The brother stepped in, and Nico put his own lieutenant in to manage the business. Krasanov was sidelined, and then went AWOL. How do you know all this? asked Blake. Well, we've had some luck on our intel over the last year. We have a couple of people inside the group. Jesus, that's dangerous, isn't it? It's dangerous, but we've got to a point where we even have them connected to one of our mate's daughters. Fucking hell, boys, that's close. Very, but it's an excellent agent of great CI and we're beginning to see results. Is he Albanian? asked Blake. I can't comment on that, said O'Megan. What we do know is we know our boy went AWOL and then several months back we've picked him up on surveillance photos, which means Krasanov was in Hull with Raphael and then he's been seen on surveillance in Newcastle. But here's where it gets really interesting before he disappeared for a while. We found him in Leeds. In Leeds? Yes, with Julia Smolenkova. Jesus. Close to the wind, ain't it? Said Blake. Exactly. He went in under the cover of darkness, but we now know it was him who visited her and stayed several nights on two occasions at the home near Leeds. So, whether true or not, 
It looks like we may have some leverage on our boy. Exactly, said Omegan. That's where we start the squeeze. 